a podcast from Glasgow International, bringing together artists and curators in creative conversation. Find us at glasgowinternational.org. Hello and welcome to a very special panel discussion on the topic of shifting attention, taken after the theme of the Glasgow International 2020 Festival, now postponed until 2021, and its theme of attention. This episode was recorded as part of Glasgow International's online programme in April 2020, shortly after the start of lockdown. So my name is uh, Richard Parry, I'm the director of Glasgow International, and joining me are three esteemed guests. Firstly, the writer and critic Oric Gat, who is currently contributing editor of The White Review, but has written for numerous publications, including Freeze, Art Review, Eflux, and many others. I'm also joined by the writer and critic Brian Dillon, who, amongst other things, is the UK editor of Cabinet Magazine and Professor of Creative Writing at Queen Mary University of London. I'm also joined by the curator and writer Stephanie Hessler, who is the director of Kunsthal Trondheim in Norway, and who in late 2018 co-organised with Graham D. Burnett a symposium on the topic of practices of attention for the Sao Paulo Biennale. It's fantastic to have you all with me. Thanks so much. Brian, if you could talk a little bit about your previous research into this topic of attention and how it's interested you. Thanks, Richard. I suppose that I I come at the topic of attention via an adjacent term, which is curiosity. You and I worked together on an exhibition for the Hayward Gallery's touring programme in 2013 with that title, Curiosity, subtitled, um, I've forgotten the subtitle of our exhibition, um, but it was about art and wonder. Art and and the pleasures of knowing. Art and the pleasures of knowing. Thank you. We were very interested in the kind of historical scientific side of curiosity, its relationship with collecting, but also a sense that intellectual curiosity was part of artistic practice and that we wanted to see what would happen if you juxtaposed, if you put in the same room, scientific artifacts alongside works from contemporary artists. Curiosity, I suppose, has a sense both of a kind of wide-ranging intellectual, aesthetic, personal, emotional adventure, a sense of openness, whereas attention, I suppose, which is at the same time very much part of curiosity and its history, attention has very much more a sense of narrowing of focus. And I suppose this is the thing that kind of interests me most at the moment, I've been very struck in our current very peculiar situation at the circulation of a particular sentence by Blaise Pascal from 1654 in Pascal's Pensee. And some people may have come across this already. People are kind of circulating on, on Twitter. Pascal says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And somehow this seems both a kind of consoling thing to say at the moment, but it's also a kind of, it has, has a kind of like yawning anxiety attached to it. There's a long history of philosophical thinking and literary thinking about what happens intellectually when you sit quietly alone in a room. Attention typically involves not paying attention to everything else, right? To pay attention is to kind of circumscribe or to uh, delimit the world, to bracket things out. 
The uh, historian of science, uh, Lorraine Dustin, has written really intriguingly about this, about the way in which attention is always a kind of exclusion and therefore always has a kind of ethical controversy or set of problems attached to it. And you see this in the, in the 17th century with um, the rise of scientific curiosity. Robert Hooke, the great English scientist, in 1665 published his book Micrographia, which is like the first book in English that reproduces illustrations based on observations with the, the microscope. And there's a really famous image that people may know of a close-up of a flea in immense kind of revolting detail. But he also pays attention to ordinary things. For me, one of the, the really, really interesting moments in that book is where Hooke decides to turn his microscope on the things that are just to hand, that are around him, like the edge of a razor or the point of a needle, or really interestingly, a full stop or period on a printed page. And he trains the microscope on it, and it turns out to be this kind of monstrous, enormous, teeming kind of thing. This dot in space turns into a whole universe. And I guess that's a kind of recurring theme in situations, whether they're intellectual, whether they're philosophical or scientific or artistic, in which you begin to pay attention to the tiniest, the most kind of circumscribed or limited part of the world, and it opens up before you. It turns into a universe, it turns into a cosmos, it turns into a, a world. But that always comes kind of freighted with um, morality and with controversy about whether you're paying attention to the right part of the world. And I think that kind of moral perplex, that kind of anxiety, never goes away. And you can see it a lot, I think. We may come back to this, of course, uh, in our discussion in a moment. I think you can see that a lot in recent weeks, especially in kind of online discussions about the everyday things that might be kind of consoling or interesting to us in isolation. The, the craze for people, certainly in this country, making their own bread becomes immediately denounced at the same time as a kind of dereliction of seriousness, you know. We're always also very quick to accuse others of not paying the right kind of attention. Thank you very much. Lots of things, as you say, I'm sure we'll come back to. Ori, if I could maybe turn to you now and we could hear a little bit more around how attention is relevant, I guess, in regards to the internet, which is something that you've, you've explored in various ways. Um, yeah, it's something I've explored in various ways in my writing, but also now with regards to the internet is basically with regards to all culture that exists around us. I started thinking about this because I first met Brian in 2012 at a talk at Freeze Talks that he organized entitled Attention! Exclamation point, Criticism and its Distractions. And back in 2012, I wanted to talk about the internet as a space of heightened attention. And it felt pretty unpopular. At the time, there were a lot of articles and books coming out, like maybe since the middle of the 2000s, about how the internet is pretty much ruining our attention. The one that has become emblematic of that moment about the internet as a distraction is this book by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows, which started from an article in The Atlantic that was titled How the Internet is Making You Stupid. It was published in 2011, and so a 10th anniversary issue of it just came out on March 3rd, which just seems like one of the most 
badly timed editions to ever come out because I read the introduction to the second edition and it's just astoundingly out of touch. It reads, Welcome to the Shallows. When I wrote this book 10 years ago, the prevailing view of the internet was sunny, often ecstatically so. We revealed the seemingly infinite bounties of the online world. We admitted to the wizards of Silicon Valley and trusted them into our home and our internet. We took it in faith that the computer hardware and software that would make our lives better, our minds sharper. In a 2010 Pew Research survey of some 400 prominent thinkers, more than 80% agreed that by 2020, people's use of the internet will have enhanced human intelligence. As people are allowed unprecedented access to more information, they become smarter and make better choices. The year 2020 has arrived. We're not smarter. We're not making better choices. So Carr thought then, and still thinks, that the internet somehow damages the quality of our thinking by bombarding us with information. And so I started looking back at articles to try to assess exactly what that damage to our thinking would look like. Um, so in 2013, Scientific American decided they were going to summarize the discussion about whether or not the web has altered our concentration. And the way they did that was by checking how people read a text, like the same text, on a screen and on the page. And they realized that because the screen like doesn't have the same tactile experience as reading on the page, it prevented people from navigating long texts in intuitive and satisfying ways. The article was called The Reading Brain in the Digital Age. And I was always fascinated by this idea that what we read on screen does not matter. A while ago, there was this wave of articles that came out about reading online. Interestingly, the two most amazing examples of that were both by people who had like recently become parents. So the first is writer Nicholas Thompson, who was then the editor of Wired magazine, who wrote about how when he had children, he had to like sit in their bedroom for a very prolonged period of time at night to keep them company. And so when he had his second child and remembered that experience, he decided to start reading something on his phone, but like something that would define that period. And so he decided to read War and Peace on his phone. And surprise, surprise, it was still war and peace on his phone. It wasn't something else. It wasn't something that he wasn't paying attention to. And so the conclusion that he came to was that the assumption that serious writing goes in print and like some fleeting argument can be found online is the reason that we expect print to be more intellectually engaging than what we read online. And so the difference between paper and monitor is just is not in what a reader internalizes, it's in what a reader like exports, like assumes that it would be. Similarly, there is a gorgeous, beautiful piece in The Atlantic that was published in 2016 by a writer called Sarah Boxer, whose father was the literary critic for The New York Times, and he considered reading Proust's In Search of Last Time one of life's greatest experiences. And she has tried and failed for many, many times to read Proust so that she could share that with her Proust fan father, and failed about three times, but then had a child and was breastfeeding at night. And so decided to like try and read Proust again on her phone. And the piece is this beautiful description of the postcards that she sent herself at night. And so she would like be reading on her phone while breastfeeding in the middle of the night and highlight sections of Proust on her phone. And in the morning she would wake up and like email herself those highlighted sections as if they came as postcards. She described the screen of her cell phone as a tiny glass bottomed boat moving slowly over a vast and glowing ocean of words in the night. 
moving silently, glidingly forward. And so I just wanted to like bring these two examples of like how we engage with content online to remind all of us that what's online is not just a huff post or vice, it is also war and peace and proofs. Like both of these writers got these texts from the Project Gutenberg. And so this idea that the internet has ruined our attention, some people claim that now our attention span had dropped since 2000 to 2020 from 12 seconds to eight seconds, which is apparently shorter than the attention span of a goldfish. The New York Times ran an article about how coronavirus ended the screen time debate and screams won. Um, it includes an interview with another of my favorite naysayers from the early 2010s, a writer called Sherry Turkle, who wrote a book titled Alone Together that explored how screen-mediated human connection has always led to less meaningful exchanges. And so she's interviewed in that Times article and admits that worrying about screen time may have always been a misplaced anxiety and that this current crisis shows us how the internet can be used for learning and connecting. So between this like space of spending all of our time online, communicating immensely online, being exposed to so many other people and opinions, I wanted to circle back to like me back in 2012, thinking about the internet as a space of heightened attention or a place for introspection, because... I want to argue that like, now that we spend all of our time online, we can really think about what it means and like, how so much of what we see online is stuff that we can trace back through our history and see how we got there. So, like, Did you share it with a friend? Did you get it from social media? Is it something you wanted to know? Did you get it from Google? Is it a distraction? Is it a link that just led from somewhere? Or is it YouTube's audio play? You can trace so much intent in the online content that people are consuming. And there's a lot of political meaning to this intent. Like, I feel like a lot of us are now looking for a lot of information about new subjects, like the state of healthcare, and we're learning how to like, assess some of our sources, and we're learning how to assess sources together on social media, for example. Um, so I think that like now that screens won, it's time for all of us to think about the internet as a space of shared consciousness that we need to pay attention to, and where the attention that we're paying is not just monetizable economy, but also a form of intent. Thank you very much. That's great. All right. Lots of food for thought there. Stephanie, if, if I might turn to you now and be good to hear perhaps a little bit more about how attention has informed your research and curatorial practice. And I know specifically one of those things is around different senses and sense perception. As uh, you said, Richard, that's been quite important in my curatorial work and in my thinking about attention. And the reason for that is that I believe that we need to broaden the, the sort of paradigms of attention and perception and cognition, consciousness, etc., that have been very much informed by the idea of the mind. So if we think about the word attention and that it means to apply one's mind or energies to something, then I think it is quite key that we do not only consider the mind as, you know, the brains, but also consider the body as a part of that. And the other senses that are not only visual, and in particular in art, and, you know, we still refer to it as visual art quite often, but there have been a lot of other forms of production that are not only made to be looked at, Performance, obviously, is one of them. Sound works. There are olfactory works. And I'm particularly interested in these kinds of practices that touch us and that speak to us through other forms. And whereas I believe that all objects have a certain 
um, you know, can possibly exert some sort of attention or energy towards us. In these artworks, I see that there may be a sort of trigger to think about these things in a more concrete way to then eventually uh, see them also occur in our surroundings. An artist that I've worked with quite often is Cecil Tolas, and she is a smell researcher and an artist who's been working with scents for the last three decades. And she collects smells from, from all sorts of different contexts and synthesizes them and then creates new forms of smell. Some of them may remind us of certain things that we've experienced previously and some are also completely new and cannot really be named um, what's interesting in terms of smell is that it is registered in the same part of the brain where emotions are registered and also memory. And so I'm sure we, you all know about the Proust's famous Madeleines and the kind of smell that reminds him of a scene in his childhood. And um, so beyond memory, because I think that is, it's important to make the distinction between memory, consciousness, perception and attention but nonetheless I believe that these other forms of senses such as smell can also allow us a different sort of attention to the world and the world to pay a different form of attention to us and maybe to sort of go back to the question of the visual I've been looking a lot into the history sort of of the visual and technologies of vision that have enabled to home in our attention to certain objects. Um, the microscope was mentioned earlier. The telescope is another such technology. And these technologies have been part of the building of a new sort of uh, scientific paradigm that have enabled humans to look into things that wouldn't be visible to their eyes otherwise. And they've also helped on uh, sort of colonial imperialist expeditions to make the scene seem as if it is there for us, as if we can refer to it in the way that we wish to, and we can also make it measurable and subsume it to a grid, the grid which has often become a map. And so this sort of grid and the uh, technologies of vision, later also cameras, they always produce a very linear, a linear object to which we direct our attention or that demands our attention because it has a certain authority. And on the other hand, there are many writers such as Kim Tolbert, an indigenous science and technology studies uh, thinker, who has uh, criticized you know, paradigms such as this, criticized them as particularly Western and as having been part of the sort of history of, of telling a certain story. And that story being, you know, the, the stories told by the West or by the global North. So when it comes to the perception or, you know, thinking about other senses and how we can pay attention with our other senses, I would also say that we need to be quite careful about not turning it into something as we've seen in some shops that, you know, create an overload with their specific smells and with their music and basically they try to saturate all of our attention and all of our sort of sensory organs are being are being stimulated in order to grab our entire attention. And so I would argue for a sort of humble form of attention that doesn't go towards or doesn't seek saturation, but that allows for a certain openness also. Thanks very much. And actually, I just, just to sort of cycle back, Steffi, to what you were saying there about, about that phrase, practices of attention, 
And I know you've, you've obviously looked into that a lot, but, it, but it'd be great just to kind of probe that a little bit more. Yeah, so you mentioned a symposium that Graham Burnett and I co-organized in Sao Paulo as part of the Biennale in 2018. And the entire Biennale was sort of dedicated to this question of attention. And one of the things that the Biennale sought doing was to establish a sort of program that would allow people to pay attention to artworks in a different way. It's received quite a lot of criticism for reasons similar to what Brian mentioned earlier on, that um, as soon as you sort of pay attention to a particular artwork or another kind of object, uh, there's always an exclusion that's taking place. And especially at a time in Brazil and still now, the exclusion was perceived as that which was happening politically in the world in which the biennial was taking place. Nonetheless, one could also argue that practices of attention can be quite a crucial political tool, especially as our att attention is being diverted and distractions are produced arguably on purpose to capture our attention and distract us from what is at stake. But yeah, so the program that we did included some quite practical attention exercises that were happening together with participants in front of artworks that form part of the biennial. And we had also invited artists to do specific sessions that would allow participants to, to perceive and pay attention differently. Marcus Lutyens did a series of uh, hypnosis sessions uh, in which he created a sort of scenario that allowed people to imagine they were entering the belly of a ship. Isabel Lewis did a what she calls an occasion in which she was dancing, singing, speaking. There were plants that we had brought into the biennial building sounds. She had also brought scents made by Cecil Tolas and uh, it was an evening of sort of queer encounter in which the topic of attention was also a topic. But I guess these practices are forms of exercises that are not only intended to make us think about attention differently but to actually try them out. And so it was uh, fascinating to work with the different participants and also to somewhat disrupt the um, yeah, the expectation to or even let's say the sort of academic attention in that room. Totally. And Brian, just, just to sort of actually pick up on something that Steffi said there around the relationship between the microscope and the telescope, which I thought was kind of interesting, and to go back to some of those ways in which people um, have in the past looked at objects. Sure. I guess the microscope is one technology and the sentence or the paragraph is another, right? I mean, I'm quite interested in trying to think, and I've done this with students at the Royal College of Art and now at, uh, as you said earlier, at Queen Mary, thinking about what the literary equivalents might be of certain kinds of technology of attention, whether it's scientific or cinematic or photographic. Is there a kind of stylistic or linguistic analogy that one could come up with. There are some really obvious things. So that, you know, one of the histories of attention in literature has to do with the practice and the idea of realism, which is a way of paying attention at numerous different levels. One of them might be political, it might be societal, you know, this is the kind of big ambition of uh, the novel in the 19th century, to show as in a writer like Balzac or Dickens, for example, to give a portrait of a whole 
society at a particular moment in time. But what goes along with that kind of vast kind of panoramic ambition is in a lot of those writers at the same time, a real focus on things, as you say, on the things around a narrator, a character, a subject. And if you look at a writer like Gustave Flaubert in uh, Madame Bovary, on the very first page of Madame Bovary, he gives the reader this extraordinary kind of exercise in paying attention to a thing. And it's a really ordinary thing. It's the hat that Charles Bovary, the character as a boy, is wearing on his first day at his new school. And it's a really embarrassing hat. It's a really ugly hat. It looks, says Flaubert, as if it were made up of numerous different hats, all stitched together. And in order to describe this thing, Nabokov once made a drawing of what he thought this hat looked like, which you, you, you can find online. In order to describe this thing, he describes each layer of it, each aspect of it, in turn. So it's a very slow paragraph in which he moves from the bottom of the hat slowly through its different stages up to the top to the tiny tassel at the end of it. And as you're reading this description, on the one hand, you're thinking, this is incredibly detailed. This is absurdly detailed. He's telling me more than I need to know as a reader. By the end of the paragraph, you have no idea what the thing looks like. And I think there is a kind of long history in literary ways of thinking about attention. The moment at which a really close, detailed act of looking somehow flips over, transforms itself into a kind of stupidity, into a sort of stupefaction. Lorraine Daston, who I mentioned earlier, actually also talks about this in a great essay about attention that she wrote for us at Cabinet Magazine. There's a stage in paying really arduous attention to the world where you become distracted, in fact, or astonished, or you fall into a kind of state of, of wonder. And I'm really interested in the sense that, which does feel kind of very contemporary and kind of, I think, touches on a lot of what Orit was saying earlier, a sense that we can't really distinguish between attention and distraction. Once we begin to push both of these terms and experiences or conventions or protocols for looking at the world, once we begin to push them as far as they, they will go, they start to look very, very much like each other. I can't stop thinking about what Brian is saying and about this minutia of description and how different the image that we have of a writer paying attention to one detail, writing about it, the hat or the curtains, the window curtains in Madame Bovary, and then the image that we have of like what imagination is and how imagination is about like lying in the grass and looking at the clouds and like there is an argument that could be made that imagination as distraction is about looking at the world more. It's like an opening up rather than a closing down. Absolutely. And I think that thought of imagination is absolutely something I've been kind of circling back to in these past days and that kind of opening up of a space for that. Another thing is this notion of when it moves towards almost like meditation or contemplation or another kind of plane of consciousness perhaps as well 
This is also something that's happening online right now. People are writing more and more pieces about watching live streams, specifically of animals. Pete Wells, the restaurant critic from the New York Times, wrote a piece about watching a six-hour sheep video from a farm, like a wine farm in California. Um, I've been keeping like a YouTube link of like before I got to the seaside where I am right now, I had a YouTube video of the ocean open in the background at all times. This is fascinating. I hadn't realized that it was such a kind of thing of the moment because I I found myself while I was writing, one of the things that I've done during lockdown amazingly is finish a book. I'm not entirely sure how I managed to do this. But one of the chapters in my book is about Susan Sontag. And I, I found myself watching her film, Unguided Tour, from the early 80s. It's based on a short story of hers from a few years earlier. And I found myself for absolutely no reason at all watching it on YouTube slowed down to half speed. (laughs) And I I passed a very, very happy couple of hours watching the film at half speed, quite early in the kind of lockdown period. I wonder what that is exactly. It's really interesting that both Stephanie and Ori mentioned Proust. And somehow in various kinds of online discussions in recent weeks, Proust has become a, a kind of a stick to beat yourself with on the one hand. We should be reading Proust rather than, you know, baking bread or being on Twitter or whatever it happens to be. Or we shouldn't be reading Proust. We should be paying attention to the politics, for example, of what's happening right now. Proust has come to kind of stand somehow for this kind of difficult but somehow also dreamy state, aesthetic state. Of course, if you actually go back and do read Proust, you discover a writer who is completely obsessed with technology, and especially with technologies of representation and technologies of attention. He's obsessed by photography. He's obsessed by early cinema. Proust was a writer who subscribed to a telephone service where you could call up a number and listen to opera. You know, he's eminently distractible. And his his novel is about distraction. The moment of the Madeleine, which which Stephanie mentioned earlier, is, is precisely a moment of distraction. It's a moment of falling into this kind of stupor that we seem to be discussing now. So during the first week of lockdown, I was kind of having this feeling of having to produce and being really hyper. And at that time, I also read an article by Aisha Ahmad, who was writing about the performance pressure that many of us are experiencing during Corona. And after that first week, I I kind of stopped feeling that pressure and I also stopped being able to concentrate. So my attention span was reduced more and more. And what Amat is writing is that, you know, this is a very traumatic situation and uh, she's likening it to other sorts of experiences that she's had personally in terms of war and displacement. And so, so that made me think about, okay, what does it actually mean to be able to pay attention right now? You know, and inevitably it's a big privilege to be able to pay attention and to, you know, have a mind that can maybe be distracted and ruminate and then come across a certain surprise or something unexpected. But yeah, I think it's important that we also consider that question. And a few years ago, there was a study that was done by the Harvard Medical School, and uh, they were looking into gender differences in attention. 
And basically they found that in places with less gender equality, women were less able to pay attention. So I think it's quite important to also look at the intersections of class, race and gender when we think about the topic of attention. Definitely one of the things that I've been thinking about all being in these individual environments, like everyone's experience of this is going to be different. And as you say, a lot of those things will relate to questions of income or of who you're with or the space that you have. And yeah, I, I guess that's something that's really been pressing on, on my mind. Like, I feel like one of the points that Stephanie brings up when she talks about class and access and paying attention, which I think mm -hmm. it's so privileged to be able to not pay attention to, to what is happening right now, mm -hmm. but comes up the question of time and like the necessity of time for attention, attention being a waste of time or something that takes too much time and the abundance of time that people have now. Mm. like unstructured time maybe more than abundance of time and I guess also this thing because the days have all melted into one they're indistinguishable to some extent I, I guess one of the things I've been doing is coming up with sort of routines you know and this whole thing of having a certain amount of time for instance for a walk or for exercise and and you know and other people say well maybe there's a similar amount of time for feeding Bruce or <laughs> whatever it might be that like rigid idea that like everyone is talking about routines right now does not leave time for paying attention to something new or for distraction weren't those kinds of calculations of attention of how much time to devote to work how much time to devote to labor how much time to devote to the care for oneself or for others those were already in the past the past i mean two months ago <laughs> those were already part of the culture in such a, an accelerating and intense way so that it's very interesting now to think back on that past and the ways in which we mostly in recent decades through technology outsourced our sense of time to various kinds of schedules, you know, increasingly technologized schedules. And we both gave ourselves up to that and, and at the same time kind of bristled at it, complained about it. And as Orit was saying earlier, and this is, this is, I think, really fundamental, we're now at a moment where those anxieties seem both a waste of time and at the same time somehow more heightened because the question is what happens to, to all of this routinization and, and regimentation of our time in the coming months, right? Absolutely. For everyone listening, please check out some of the rest of our content. And I look forward to seeing everybody in the, in the flesh, uh, in the real world, in, in due course. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Orit Gatt, Brian Dillon, Stephanie Hessler and Richard Parry talking in April last year as part of Glasgow International's digital programme. Find out more about the huge array of events available this year online and across the city at glasgowinternational.org. Encounters was produced by Lindsay Moyes for Glasgow International, supported by the Scottish Government's Expo Fund and Arts Fund. Thank you for listening. Thank you.